the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. Yeah, we're Working. we're here. We're on. Jason's taking a picture as we're kicking off Wine Women Radio Hour here at Rebel Vintners in Napa. And uh, our guest today is Jason Holman. Welcome, Jason. It's good Thank to have you, you here. Thanks. Good or to rather, be here. it's good for us to be here. It's kind of not the other way around. Uh, Linda Paulson is uh, one of my co-hosts today. Yes, you're on. You you don't have to mouth the words. Any. Your, your mic is live. You're on. Linda Paulson, CEO and executive coach and trainer of Success Strategies, Inc. Linda, thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Nice being here. Uh, yeah. Linda is also... Uh, ambassador director or director of ambassadors. I think it works either way as kind of as a palindrome. Not really. We know palindrome really would have to work a different way, but reversing the uh, word order would work. uh, And you do uh, the ambassador role on the board of directors for wine women as well. Yes, ma'am. So thank you for helping out today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm going to recruit Jason any minute. Any minute. There you go. (laughs) Exactly. You've got the roll down pat. I'm working. (laughs) Woohoo. Uh, so Jason Holman, uh, also one of the founders of Rebel Vintners, this fantastic tasting room that we are at. Thank you for hosting us here. Um, let's paint the picture a little bit, Jason, for where we're at. We're, we're sitting at one of your fantastic trestle tables so that people can easily converse. Um, although most of your guests probably do it without an array of sound equipment and microphones in front of them, right? <laughs> That's true, yeah. There Tip- you- typically games like Cards Against Human- Humanity and other things like that. <clears throat> but yeah, uh, Rebel Vintners is a uh, uh, collective tasting room that we started back in May of 2018. Uh, we're on the corner of First and Coombs in downtown Napa, right across from the new Archer Hotel. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun, casual uh, atmosphere, lots of windows, lots of communal tables. Um, and the, uh, the owners and winemakers like myself are the ones behind the bar pouring the wine. So, um, people come in not just for the fact that they're, um, great wines, but also for the kind of fun banter and interaction of working or, you know, Mm -hmm. talking direct to the owner, a winemaker of the brands. I think that's something that's really pretty rare in a tasting room, let alone one that is in downtown Napa in a prime location to visit is that you can come get your tasting, have your experience, kick back with the family. We'll talk about that in a second. And you can get your answers, your questions, answers, question. Um, You can get your your (laughs) questions answered. That's where I was trying to go. You can get your questions answered about the wine by the winemaker, by the person who actually you know, manage the crushing, the entire process, and had a vision for where they wanted to go with this wine. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's rare and very, very cool. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Nifty. And that's kind of why we chose Rebel. You know, we're doing things a little bit differently. You sure are. And it's a different experience. Yeah. Yeah. So another feature of being unusual and different is Rebel focuses in on natural wines, organic wines, biodynamic wines, um, so that's a direction that you've gone that's a little different than the majority of wineries out there. Yeah, we, we like to um, kind of broaden the, broaden the title a little bit to kind of minimal intervention winemaking and wines. And so, you know, not all of our wines are, uh, you know, biodynamically grown. But, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part, across the board, all the wines are made um, uh, in the vineyard, really. Mm-hmm. And so we're picking at the, the perfect ripeness of... Um, flavor and acid and sugar um, so that when it gets to the cellar, we really don't have to do a whole lot to it. There's no additions. There's no fining or filtering. Um, It's just very minimal. It's grapes Mm -hmm. in your glass is the final product. Grapes in your glass. I like that. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. When my visitors come here and they want to visit the wineries and they come back at the end of the day and they say, what's the difference between organic biodynamic and natural and I have no idea what to say what would I say yeah no um <laughs> you're, you're gonna join the people who have probably put these projects together and they don't really know either <laughs> <Uh-oh>. so, <laughs> so biodynamic is more about the vineyard it's yeah. about the <clears throat> um growth um 
kind of sphere within the vineyard. So that's you know using animals to graze instead of mowing. Um, it's oh. using animals during that time to also um, uh, fertilize. Um, so goats and things and chickens. Um, rather than what? Uh, rather than mechanically doing it, so rather than tractors and rather than um, you know trucking in fertilizers and and uh, and manure and such and and dropping that in um, and tilling it into the ground. So this is done a little bit more on a on a natural um, you know kind of cycle of the earth and <laughs> scale. Yeah, and and um, a lot a lot has to do about uh, moon phase and you know there are certain things about. Um, uh, biodynamic vineyards they don't pick on certain days because those are uh, leaf days or growth days for the vine and other days are focused on mm. fruit days and again that all goes back to moon cycles so mm -hmm. there's just a lot more um, uh, centered around biodynamics that I think when you move into organic farming and um, kind of natural and minimal intervention um, uh, that's that's more of a just broader term for I'm not using any nuclear um, sprays or you know anything um, mm -hmm. super um, strong concentration that doesn't already mm -hmm. appear in um, uh, nature. Um, so uh, organic wine, uh, organic wa uh, grape growing is more of kind of the the broader style um, that biodynamics fits into, but it's kind of a broader topic. Um, and then. Um, in terms of the winemaking, um, using organic products. Uh, if you're if you're doing additions, there's um, like um, adding fining products or adding yeast. Um, uh, a bunch of different bigger companies like Lafort have come out with products that have um, organic um, um, components to it, so that it's not using anything that's uh, commercial or nothing synthetic. Yeah, nothing synthetic. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and then natural is more of a, and it's a, it's a big title of contention right now because there's a bunch of critics and, and wine reviewers right now who are just grabbing as many um, uh, natural wines as they can, flawed or not, and they're tasting them all, and their kind of big broad topic about natural wine is kind of... Good for you, eh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but good and bad because it's uh, natural wine is... Um, uh, kind of a short way to describe it is uh, blindfolded winemaking, where you like just kind of turn your eyes to it and you just <laughs> let it happen on its own. <laughs> we try not to do that. We we love to taste our you know our products. There there are babies you know during fermentation. It's it's um, we need to get in here and try these wines on the daily just to make sure they're going in the right trajectory and kind of turning a blind eye. They often come out with flaws and. Natural wine has embraced the flaw, I would say. Um, so we're trying to, yeah, so by uh, when we use minimal intervention winemaking, we're, we're nodding to the fact that natural wine is kind of that style, um, but we have a little mm. more, um, we're, we're more involved with it. So we're going to fix it um, or, or make sure that we don't have the problems that typical natural wines have. So I have a follow-up to Linda's excellent question. Um, playing, a, playing a little devil's advocate here on the natural wine subject, um, a common complaint, I don't know, complaint's the wrong word, but um, a common uh, comment that, that you hear about natural wines is, oh, well, the problem with natural wines is they're not shelf-stable. Mm -hmm. Now, oh. sh shelf-stable in itself it is a term that implies something synthetic has been added to the wine to make it shelf-stable and, and last on the wine. Um, that isn't always necessarily true either. Um, there's a great deal of, of uh, regular winemaking um, that is done with all-natural ingredients, um, not with something synthetic, um, uh, but they, they just don't categorize it as natural. Um, what do you want to say about um, aging natural wines and, and that type of a claim? Yeah, so um, I think it's r very possible to age um, um, minimal intervention or natural wines. Um, and I, I think um, it's, it's all about the quality of how the wines were made. If they were made in a clean environment, um, chances are when they go to bottle, they will be clean wines. 
And then as they age, they will probably continue to be clean and, and, and sound and so shelf stable. Um, it's, it's funny too, I mean, in this day and age, we can look around Napa and see, um, you know, people are starting to release cabs sooner and sooner and sooner. And so <laughs> my, my, my big question is, are people even aging wines anymore? And um, from polls that I've taken, there's there's a lot of people. You know, let's let's talk about San Francisco. Like price for real estate in San Francisco is so high. Um, oftentimes, those old historic wine cellars that were in those homes have now turned into laundry rooms or <laughs> or other bedrooms. You know, right. and so people are kind they of they need every square inch. Yeah. So the 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 typical um, wine client that comes in and loves our wines and buys the wine, they're not really going to age them for a very long time. And, and it's not just our wines. We've just kind of seen it in Napa in general. There's mm -hmm. kind of this moving mm -hmm. trend away from aging wine into, I'm going to buy wine to drink next week. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, I'm for that. <laughs> and, a, a positive, and a positive thing that I would say to that is I don't know of but a very small number like that I could only count on one hand. Yeah, that's our wine coming up right here. Uh, so I'm going to let Jason keep pouring that because it's pretty fantastic. Oh, um, very, very few winemakers I know say, uh, please hold off. Don't drink this for another three, five, ten years. I can't do that. Uh, <laughs> just, Linda just, says no. She just ha she has to get in on it now, which is a good thing. So Going back to your, your thing of does anybody age Napa cabs, uh, if they have the luxury to buy multiple cases because they want to see how they age, that's really nice. And we all know of a few wineries that specifically um, age a long time in barrel before bottling, before release, mm -hmm. but the number's getting smaller and smaller <laughs> and smaller. So uh, this, is a, this is a good thing for you, Jason, and I think everybody else. Uh, we should be drinking more wine. So. And that, that brings me to, uh, we like to throw in a little bit of news. And you kind of touched on that um, kind of accidentally, I think, in what you said about, is anybody aging cabs? Well, I, I get the feeling that Napa wineries are um, trying to move a lot more wine as quickly as possible because right now the news is that there's a glut so there's a surplus of wine available, and it is not being consumed as fast by the general public as they would like, and that this may be over the year or two driving prices down. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, we're looking at the demographics of who's coming to Napa and who's buying wine, and we still see a lot of kind of the boomer generation in here, but we're also seeing this... Uh, this younger kind of millennial, zennial generation who's coming in, they've, they've been working in the tech industry or something, and some people are still intrigued with those big wines, um, but a lot of people say, oh, those were my parents' wines, I want something new and different and, <laughs> and they fresh want spritzers. and funky and, oh, hey. <laughs> 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 oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I had a millennial in a class recently and she gave a big lecture on how you should get away from the craft beers, get away from the wine, and just drink those lovely watery products out there. Oh goodness. Oh goodness. Um, there is a water sommelier something for after. everybody. Yes. <laughs> there is. There is. Well, today today we're focusing in on wine and yes. specifically and loving it. Uh, the wine from Holman Cellars, which this is beautiful. Um, Thank Jason's you. Jason's brand actually he has several he has several brands under Holman Cellars, but this comes from his flagship brand, Uncharted. A really kind of mm. cool name. Would you Would you like to? Tell us a little bit of the history of the name and then introduce the wine that Sorry, Linda and I, I are drinking right some. now. Sorry, I already drank some. It's delicious. I know. I know I'm not waiting it. either. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, Looks like a wedding dress. Yeah, yeah. So Un Uncharted is a uh, kind of a call out to how I got into the wine industry. I didn't necessarily go to school to be a winemaker. Um, I, in fact, I went to law school first and... Um, 
fell in love with wine, kind of um, drinking wine, any anyway, <laughs> tasting wine. Well, that's a circuitous route <laughs> yeah. uh, to it's go g- to get a law degree and then get into winemaking. Yeah, so kind of started there, mm-hmm. came down to Napa, um, waiting for bar results to uh, show up, and got my first first job in the cellar with um, kind of uh, a, a big name in the in the valley. His name's John Kongsgard, and um, you know we were making. $200 bottles of Cabernet and Syrah and Chardonnay Yippee. just like right mm. off the bat. And I, I didn't have any idea what sort of experience I was <laughs> in for, nor did I know that I was starting at the top. Um, so I, I fell in love with it, fell in love with the small production. The how fact did, that How it, did you luck in with him? Uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he's part of the family. So I, I, was, I was kind of able to, um, I, um, my wife at the time and I called uh, him and just said, "Hey, we haven't haven't uh, seen you since we got married. We'd love to connect up." And he said, "Wow, it's great that you just called. How long are you here for?" My son just tore his ACL, and I'm the only guy. Or I need another guy I in the cellar. Help. Yeah, <laughs> and Harvest is here. And I said, "I'm I'm your guy. I'm sticking around for a while." And, and so you started as a cellar rat. Yeah, I was rolling barrels, pressure washing, <laughs> climbing in tanks, You're cleaning hoses. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's learning. It's sure learning from the ground up, and you're not the first winemaker to go from cellarat to to head winemaker. Yeah, yeah. This uh, is cool. delicious. Oh, Thank so you. we should. Wonderful. So Linda loves this. Let's <laughs> yeah. talk about it. So this is uh, my 2018 Petiant Naturel, um, made from Pinot Meunier out in Russian River. So it is a sparkling wine, Petnat. Um, is kind of a, a twisty mustache hipster word for um, <laughs> uh, sparkling wine or ancestral method sparkling wine, if you will. And if you're not familiar with ancestral method, um, there are a t- uh, couple different methods for making sparkling wine. Uh, the, the most um, known is the traditional method, where you right. start with grapes, you press the grapes, you ferment the wine totally dry, um, you may blend it with other varietals, and then you, um, uh, once you have your blend or your cuvee, you then put your um, uh, a, a commercial yeast and sugar slurry together, mm-hmm. and you get that nice and happy and frothy starting to ferment, and then you pitch it back into the bigger cuvee. And when that's actively fermenting again, you bottle it under pressure. So you need a specialized bottling machine, um, that can hold pressure in the in the fill bowl, um, so you don't have foaming out in the machine as right. well as in the bottle. So ancestral method, uh, actually, as the name kind of suggests, comes from before traditional method was That's right. identified. So in 1531, there was a brutally cold winter in in Europe, and um, these winemakers were tasting their barrels of actively fermenting grapes and realize or wine and realized that. Um, the fermentation had slowed or stopped, and they didn't quite understand why. The wine was still sweet. So they bottled it that winter, um, probably some sort of cork closure and glass bottle, hand-blown maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the next spring, uh, when things started to warm up, you know, they're probably going in for a little spring cleaning. They open the cellar doors, and it looks like a ballistics chamber in there. All these corks are popping. <laughs> and uh, the ones that they that didn't pop, they pulled those and identified that they can uh, stall a yeast from continuing to metabolize sugar if you chill it cold enough. And then put it on, uh, bottle it, and then let it warm back up, and right. the yeast will continue to ferment in bottle. So. Right. Uh, that's kind of the that's kind of the route that I follow when I make this wine, um, the ancestral method, because I don't like to add any sort of products uh, to no my additional wine. sugar, no additional sugar, sugar, no commercial yeast, um, no filtering, no fining. Mm-hmm. This one doesn't have any SO2 in it either. Um, so it's you know it's essentially grapes in your glass. We press the press the grapes, put it into a climate controlled tank. Let it ferment super slow over about a month and a half period. Mm-hmm. Um, when we get really close to our, our bottling target of sugar remaining, mm. um, we chill the wine way down uh, to where it's almost completely stalled out from, uh, from fermenting. And then we bottle it under, instead of a specialized uh, sparkling machine, it's just a standard uh, bottling line. Makes me feel so good back in the back. In the back of the back throat? Yeah. 
it, in the back of the tongue. I'm not a huge fan of sparkling wine, but this is just so different. What's your production on this? I make about 200 cases of it now. Tiny. How much can Tiny. I buy? <laughs> <laughs> How much is left? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this and this is vintage as well, which is a little different than the big houses make. A lot of the time, big houses, you'll see non-vintage sparkling wine, and meaning that they blend from multiple years. Um, vint- vintage champagne or sparkling wine that comes from Europe um, is all restricted to that one year, mm-hmm. um, right. and not every year makes the cut by itself. Um, so this is absolutely delicious, and it has this um, beautiful kind of white peach um, color to it, tint to it, and uh, it's very creamy, which is wonderful. I, I mean, really, really special. How do you choose the names? Like Uncharted. How do you choose well, that? There you go. Yeah, so kind of goes back to how I got into the industry, like that going from law school into, you know, the cellar. And then, you know, from there, I, I left Napa and moved to South Africa. I got an amazing gig in South Africa, um, uh, kind of being a consulting winemaker down there. I worked there for six months, wow. trying to kind of make their whites a little more Americanized, um, which I think just means adding a little more oak. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. <laughs> Um, but huh. you know, I, w- I was doing things uh, different in there as well. And then, um, but the the biggest takeaway from working down there is I went from a 2,000 case production winery here in Napa for my first job to a 600 ton winery down there, which was a lot of automation. And you holy can, moly, you kind of lose track of <laughs> grapes and lots and things if you're not mm-hmm. very active and constantly tasting and, and monitoring and seeing where and things are. And the paperwork. Are. And the paperwork, right. Do you like the wines from there? Yeah, I do, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think South African wines are incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's unfortunate that we only see a couple of them here mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, they are, you know, the bigger, more mass-produced ones. Um, but I, I encourage everybody I talk to, if they haven't been to South Africa yet, you need to go and you need to spend some time in the wine regions because they are just phenomenal. Cool. And it's not all just Pinotage and Steen or Chenin Blanc, but, you know, there's other really great Merlots mm-hmm. and Syrahs and Cabs and, and uh, fun whites all over the board. It's nice. just delicious. Yeah. So How, the long, en- how the en- long were you there? I was there for about six months. Just enough to have it influence you a little bit, eh? Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah for sure. Mm. So yeah. Sorry, I had to sit. I had to sit there because it's it's so tasty. I really, I really like that a lot. And what's unusual? Uh, another thing that's unusual about um, your pet net here under Uncharted is that uh, unlike Method Champenoise or other sparkling wines here, uh, you go with a crown cap on this um and i bet our listeners a lot of the time don't know the difference between a regular um sparkling wine cork cap with a wire cage and a crown cap can you explain a little bit about that yeah so um kind of the traditional method sees a crown cap too and what a crown cap is is it's essentially a beer cap Um, yeah the metal um, cap yeah um champagne bottles have been um, engineered to have the same uh, lip as uh, beer bottles do, and that's so that during the uh, bottle conditioning time, when a when a wine has just been added to a bottle and it's fermenting in bottle, creating the carbonation, um, at some point all of the uh, dead yeast cells, when it's done fermenting, will die off and collect mm-hmm. in the bottom of the bottle. So that cap is there so that they can riddle or mm-hmm. move the sediment around from the bottom of the bottle to the, to the top of the bottle, the neck of the bottle. And then um, by freezing um, the neck, they can blow that plug out without losing a whole lot of wine. Yeah. And so all, um, pretty much all sparkling wines, if they're going through ancestral or um, traditional method, will have this crown cap on them first. And um, because it's such an unusual way, um, Ancestral Method is such an unusual way of making sparkling wine, I decided to keep the crown cap on there as the final product as well. Um, Versus the traditional final closure Mm -hmm. is a, you know, mushroom-shaped cork with a big cage around it. 
Um, and a big foil with its skirt. Yeah. You guys know why they have those foils on sparkling wine that go like halfway down the bottle? To keep Madame, the in? Madame Clicquot. <laughs> Madame Clicquot was the inventor uh, of the um, sparkling wine skirt. Am I, am I right, Jason? Yeah, you're, it, you're, it, you're, you're hitting it, it, kind of. It, you know, this was back, I believe, in the early 1700s that she made this invention after she had inherited... The winery from her husband, who had passed away, and when she was very young, frankly, um, and part of this was uh, the skirt uh, that goes around the neck of the bottle on a sparkling wine, is needed because back then it was a lot harder for them to control the exact filling of the bottle. Ah. So um, she didn't want people to see this these slight changes in their levels Smart. of the bottles. Smart. And so she could hide it. She could mask the various uh, changes uh, and disparities, bottle to bottle being at a different level, mm-hmm. you know, back before mechanical bottling lines, um, by putting this skirt over the top so that nobody would know. They still do it. And they still do it to this day. Tradition. How, however, today... They truly are able to control the exact uh, 750 milliliters in the bottle. Yeah. Um, uh, just the the technology wasn't there a couple centuries ago. <laughs> Clear- Did I get that right? Yeah. I, I bet there's more to that story, yeah, Jason. No, no, no. You're spot on. Um, the the uh, fill level variability, uh, especially when it was done um, initially, was so widely different that they needed a foil that came down yeah. and, and covered where the meniscus of the wine uh, is hit. that an unopened bottle? This is an right, un- so wow, you can see the crown cap on difference. it. This yeah. is an unopened bottle, and that is at 750 milliliters. So there's mm-hmm. you know a few inches of headspace yeah. here that um, is interesting. I mean, to the uh, uneducated eye, this might look like a low-filled bottle. Or like it's already been opened or and shut. Like but it's under water. pressure. It's also um, your bottle is not, it doesn't, to my eye, it doesn't look like it's as thick glass-wise. Um, as many method champagnois uh, bottlings would be. And again, that, that goes back s- to centuries ago. Um, they needed thicker glass for, for sparkling wine because it was under much higher pressure. Um, a big problem, Linda, I don't know if you know this, was that when they would transport cases of sparkling wine, um, and of course in wood crates back in the day, when they would transport those from the old country, across the Atlantic to the New World, um, the problem, of course, is they're getting shaken up pretty good in crossing. And they still are today in container ships coming across, but uh, they needed very strong bottles um, to keep them from blowing (laughs) willy-nilly across the Atlantic. So that that was part of the reason for it. Yeah, one one of the interesting um, talking about pressure. One of the interesting parts about uh, champagne is it's um, or sparkling wine is it's approximately five bar of pressure, um, and that doesn't mean much to many. But I'm a big scuba diver, and so I deal with bars all the time <laughs> in terms of pressure and depth. Um, but a, a, a typical beer that you'd get on draft or something mm-hmm. is like. Less than one bar. Oh wow! Carbonated. Wow. Yeah. So very, very, very big difference. So that's why you don't see sparkling wine coming out of a keg, <laughs> because the minute you open that tap, the server is going to be covered in wine. Right. What bar, what bar is this? Uh, they, these, well, he said this was five. Yeah. The, these are about five bar. Yeah. And that's very interesting because I have a memory of my brother and his friend. They were making homebrew beer, mm-hmm. and um, it was sitting on a shelf. Um, in our condo at one point, uh, and San Francisco, San Francisco summer was actually getting warm, unusual. Uh, and all of a sudden, I heard boom, boom, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my God, the temperature has raised enough." And of course, if you're a home brewer, getting those exact temperatures right for for pressure and everything is very difficult to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so his whole batch was starting to blow and I was <laughs> I was like you're cleaning that up <laughs> so tricky stuff uh, you've got another wine for us here in a instead of a sparkling wine bottle it's in a, a tall skinny re- 
Riesling like a bottle. Want to yeah. tell us about this? Yeah. So this uh, this is my 2017 Bacchus. Bacchus or Bacchus. Um, many people in the who are savvy about wine know about Bacchus as the Roman god of wine and mm-hmm. debauchery. Um, yeah. Uh, in uh, the 1940s, I believe, or 1930s, um, there was a German viticulturist who, um, um, obviously, they grow lots of Riesling in Germany, and, and was trying to find a Riesling that would do better in warmer climates. And so he hybridized a Riesling Silvaner cross with a Muller-Turgau um, grape. and All came, unusual. Yeah, and came up with uh, this brand new grape that he didn't know what to call it. And, you know... Silvaner was, was taken and things like that. So I'm just going to, you know, call it the Roman God of Wine and see what happens. <laughs> you know, uh, well, when you're the one making the wine, when you're creating the hybrid, you get to name it whatever you want. Now, he <laughs> didn't right. want to name it after himself, huh? Apparently not, yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> How much of this exists in the U.S. or in California? Oh, boy. Um, so there's one vineyard in California, as far as I know, um, and it's about... Uh, two acres worth of Bacchus. And so you get a bit of this, or I, do you get all of I this? Get, I get almost Holy all of it. Holy moly. Yeah. Wow. And this comes from Lodi, which you'll have to tell us about your adventures in Lodi, because one of the things I know about Holman Cellars is that you source your grapes for your wines um, from many different vineyards across the state, uh, because you're in search of kind of um, the unusual, the not everyday, the not the not necessarily the Napa Cab, or the Napa Chardonnay, or <laughs> Linda's massive, Linda's huh? doing Linda's doing <laughs> visual is... singles signals here, really um, but nobody can see them on the podcast. <laughs> Linda, this will wake you up. So, uh, Linda, uh, uh, talk about your reaction here, because you were doing all these visuals well, signals here of like, wow. Wow, wow, wow. It was wow, just wow. so mel- mellow and mild and, uh, I don't know, I, a lovely, inviting wine. And this one is, okay, let's get down and dirty, let's play. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a big wine. It's yeah. Quite, very alive, very spirited wine. Yeah, it is. It's, it's golden, too. Look at it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful grape, and, and I love this, this vineyard. So uh, the Koth family out in Lodi, they have a small vineyard called McQualmy Glen, and um, when I was doing my kind of tours around the world, uh, making wine and drinking wine, trying wine from a- around the world, um, I stumbled into Germany and um, found Bacchus in um, the Franken region or Franconia area, so north of Munich, south of um, south and east of Frankfurt. And Bacchus is one of their primary grapes that they grow there. And they're in traditional box boidles, um, which are... What is that? (laughs) They're short little stubby bottles that have um, very kind of bulbous sides, but they're flat. It's flat on the front and back. Oh, fascinating. And um, I'd like to see those. Yeah. yeah, um, I've never seen one here, but (laughs) what do I know? My all of my German wine friends love to tease me on the fact that Boxbeutel actually means uh, ram scrotum, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> apparently that's what they first bottled uh, uh, these wines in. Clue. That's why it didn't make it. They here. they yeah. put it in a yeah. natural packaging. Yes, right. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, I'm not even going to ask how the heck they. No, Lean no. them before filling <laughs> with them. Yeah, we're going to move anyway, on. <laughs> but, you, but you do not um, bottle them in no. Ram's scrum. No, no, no. <laughs> no, so I, I, I put it in a little more traditional um, uh, hawk bottle or Riesling yeah, style bottle. Um, tall, it doesn't green. taste like a Riesling to me. No, mm. it's, it's got the, the ripping acidity mm. of, a, uh, of a dry Riesling, um, but it's got a lot of green apple, green pear. Lots of honey in there. None of the uh, kind of mm. petrol or, or you know, diesel-y flavors that are no. typically associated with Riesling. I'd also say for those um, who've never seen a Bacchus or tasted one, the color is similar to what most a lot of people would associate with a, a rich Chardonnay, Chardonnay. color. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very rich golden color golden. to it, mm-hmm. but it is not the flavor profile of nope. a Chardonnay whatsoever. 
You were mentioning those weird names of the grapes that you blended to form this wine, which begs me to ask you this. How do you know, how do you learn this art of blending, whether it's red, whether it's white? How do you learn the art of blending wine? Um, probably through a lot of trial and error. The school and, of hard knocks. Yeah, <laughs> and a lot of cooking. Um, Got to be honest, you know, a lot of my tasting notes and things, uh, probably across the board for everyone, um, comes from personal experience of, you know, that flavor that, mm -hmm. you know, this wine reminds you of this or that or, you know, um, like cedar or forest floor or sometimes... Um, I get the unusual uh, tasting note, my grandmother's basement. Nostalgia. <laughs> yeah. Nostalgia today is really big, too. It is. Yeah. So. Is that my grandmother's basement, is that a good note or a bad note? Depends <laughs> on grandma. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. a good point, Linda. Right. Was this a <laughs> sentimental shout out, nostalgic moment? Yeah. Or is this a. Um, Where grandma always moldy. took me to balmy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But it so. can be, yeah, it can be just so much fun. So I really love the flavor profile of the Bacchus. This is the 2017 Uncharted Bacchus from, and I'm not gonna, I, I, the spelling doesn't match it. McClomy, Glenn? McQualamy. McQualamy. Yeah. I knew I wasn't. And I in tried. Lodi. Is bottle in Lodi it. or those grapes in are Lodi. growing in Lodi? What? Grapes are grown in Lodi. Yeah, I live close to Lodi. All right. Oh, now, okay. Nice. Now, we talked um, off air about this before, and I'm just trying to remember. Is this the same vineyard that had the flooding issue or a yes. different one? Okay. Yes. I love that story. Got it. <laughs> got it. Okay. Or unless it doesn't apply to these this particular block of grapes. So if it belongs to a different wine, we can tell it. Yeah. No, this, this story is, then. This is the perfect time for that story. Okay. So, great. Share. So McCalmy Glen grows now 56 different German and Austrian varietals. And my brand, Uncharted, receives them all. Um, Ooh, and, congratulations. <laughs> and the bigger blocks of Riesling and Bacchus and uh, Spotburgunder, otherwise known as Pinot Noir, are down in a lower section um, towards the back of their vineyard. And it's the closest, it's the most riparian uh, blocks to the McQualamy River. Mm -hmm. So if you guys recall, um, fall of 16, or winter of 16, we had brutally... Uh, we had big snowfall. We had lots of rain in the end of 16. Yes. So much so that um, in January it warmed right up again and everyone was like, oh my gosh, we need to let out these dams and get ready for snow melt because it's coming in February, not in April, May, like it would right. be if it was a more uh, mild uh, winter. So was this, a <clears throat> I'm trying to remember, was this the same winter where... Um, the Oroville Dam had their yes. problems? Yes. Okay, thank you. Yep. Listeners, if you don't know that, just Google it. We're not going to go into it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, so the Comanche uh, Reservoir, uh, which is riparian, uh, or, or which mm -hmm. is upstream from the McQualamie River, um, the Army Corps of Engineers reached out to everybody uh, riparian to the um, river and mm -hmm. said, you guys have 24 hours, and then we're letting this thing go. That's not a whole lot of time. Oh, no, wow. it's not a whole lot of time Particularly at all. when you're in the agriculture business. That's right. It's like a blink of an eye. Yeah, it's like move your cars, get your personal belongings out of the way, because it's coming. And uh, Did you, know, you have a maintenance team that was... Well, Quick. yeah, um, it's just a family operated deal. They don't have a vineyard crew. You're the oh, crew. man. So, yeah. So Brett and and um, and the whole family got together and they were moving picnic tables. They were moving uh -huh. everything of value. But one thing that um, they hadn't done yet was prune the vineyard. So now <laughs> so they released the water. And the, the water uh, level rises all the way to above the top wires of the trellis. That's, that's pretty tight. That, that's what, more than six feet? Yeah, yeah. That's, it's Ooh. so much water. Now, in general, flooding, flooding when it happens, um, we have it happen here in the Napa Valley and elsewhere. Um, if it's in January, February, in general, even if it's for two, three weeks, it's usually not a bad thing because the vines are dormant. But there are exceptions to vines being in dormant. And this is, the, I think, the key thing you mentioned is they hadn't pruned yet. If they had pruned in December or the week before in January, 
That would have been really problematic. What happened after that? Yeah, so had they pruned, they would have had a lot of kind of open wounds on the vines and um, being underwater, that much water, um, uh, prone to a lot of infection and disease. Um, so because they hadn't pruned, and, and I think this just happened, you know, that was not a planned deal. Um, uh, b- even though the vine was mostly underwater, um, when the... Uh, sap flow started to move again in the spring um, it um, the vine was able to push fla- um, um, buds and leaves uh, <laughs> through last year's canopy which was kind of impressive so it was uh, it, it they're was, gonna bloom no matter what right unless it's underwater <laughs> and so well yes if it was <laughs> if it was underwater while they were still at um, bud break that's something else yeah so <laughs> So the vines were underwater for a very long time. It wasn't until uh, end of April that the ground uh, um, hardened up enough to get a tractor through there. So everything was done either by kayak or by hand with wow. waders on. You actually picked those grapes and used them? Yeah. Wow. Well, they weren't. So. You probably made the most unique wine in the world. <laughs> well, they weren't, they weren't picking by kayak. That was, that was way at the end of the season. But you said that bud break had occurred and everything, so they had to prune via kayak. Yeah, prune uh, via kayak. Once the water levels had gone down. Yeah, and hip waders and everything, they had to get out there and and um, and whack that canopy, last year's canopy, down. And so, you know, they did lose a couple. Um, we did lose clusters mm-hmm. that were starting to form already further up the canopy. And mm-hmm. um, so I typically make about. I don't know, 100, and, 100 to 125 cases from this uh, particular mm. block of Bacchus. Mm-hmm. And I final bottled 22 cases. Oh, wow. Total. So, so that's, a almost a, that's almost a barrel. Yeah. Almost a almost barrel's a barrel. worth. A barrel. right. So a barrel's going to be about 25 cases for, yeah. for most people. Mm-hmm. So absolutely mm-hmm. true. Jason, how many varietals do you make? That's a great question. (laughs) 34. (laughs) I release about a dozen wines a year. And I say wines while you said varietals. Um, Well, you do some blends, I know. I I do a couple different blends. Uh, One of them, uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier that the McClellan McGlenn grows 56 different varietals. And so two of my wines are actually blends of over 30 different varietals each. Okay. Um, and so that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you talked, you talked about, um, bef- under Linda's question about, you know, how do you learn blending? I always think of cooking, um, as such, a, a you know, uh, the, the, the comparison, um, uh, chefs learn to figure out which flavors complement each other, which clash, um, I'm sh- I'm sure there are certain grapes that clash if you try to blend them, um, and some that make marvelous blenders. I mean, off the top of my head, I th- I think of it's so common to put Marsan and Roussan together. Yeah. Um, it's a common practice um, to use a little bit of Viognier when you're doing uh, your. Uh, what am I thinking of? Sarah uh, blends. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I don't know. I was spacing on that. <laughs> so uh, just just to add a, a certain level of creaminess. But I'm sure you're discovering that that's part of the fun of the job is discovering new things that go together. Particularly since Bacchus is not grown in great quantity here. Um, you know, to find out oh what what all goes with this. What all what all enhances right. um, these rare. Uh, varieties that are grown here. Yeah. What a what a cool way to go to do <laughs> that. So now our listeners haven't been able to see this yet, but the uh, Uncharted label um, has uh, a beautiful, uh, s- looks like a two-masted seven-sail ship uh, as the logo on the front, uh, Uncharted Water, so to speak, which is such a perfect uh, analogy um, for... You know, uh, not sure, being, being sure where your wine, uh, you know, is going, what your is journey direction is going. Um, so I want to ask, Jason, how many years have you been producing off of the McQualmie uh, Ranch, uh, the McQualmie Vine Vineyard? How many, you know, what are you learning over the years from working 
with the same vines and the same grapes yeah. in Lodi. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm learning a lot every single year. Um, I first, I think my first vintage with McQuillan Glen was 2015, mm-hmm. and it started with just Bacchus. Okay. And then um, slowly over time, it turned into Bacchus and Riesling, Bacchus, Riesling, and Dornfelder, um, all in separate wines. And then um, I started to get into their um, Arboretum, if you will, mm-hmm. their, their kind of special collection of test vines that um, is this interplanted uh, field blend of different 56 different varietals. And so... Yeah, it's uh, um, from from the start. Uh, you know, I was I was on the hunt for this grape, Bacchus in mm-hmm. particular, and um, when I first reached out to them in 2014, they didn't have any. Sorry, <laughs> we're we're all sold out. <laughs> and I got a random phone call in, in 20 early 2015 and said, "Hey, you want it?" The, somebody just backed out, and I said, oh. "Yes." <laughs> I do. And Lucky now you. from then on, it's been like, yes, anything that comes available, I want it. Um, so now in the cellar, I have a little bit of Spiegelt as well okay. as 100%, just a barrel of that. And also Regent. No, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, Regent uh, looks like Regent, um, is a very fun red varietal, uh-huh. um, brand new to McQuillamy Glen. Um, they just planted enough to, I think when it hits its peak, it'll produce maybe two barrels worth of wine. So 50, 50 cases. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's always fun and it's always a learning experience mm-hmm. to um, uh, play, get to play with these varietals. And no matter what I know about the old world um, varietal grown in the old world terroir of Germany or, or Austria, never going to match you know, <laughs> how it's grown here in, in you've Lodi. Got, you've in got California. different climate conditions here. Sure do, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Lodi is generally known as a pretty hot region. Um, very different from various areas of Germany and Austria. Um, but they are both so mountainous, uh, mountainous and they have so many valleys um, that the microclimate situation there must be quite a lot to juggle. But, of course, they've been doing it for centuries. Yeah. Um, here, we're just a little younger in dealing with them. So a lot, a lot of fun and really interesting to learn about these differences. I suppose we, we should go on to the next wine to see what this is like right. uh, going on from uh, uh, what we just had. Yeah, so moving on. So we started with the Pet Nat, the um, uh, sparkling wine, Ancestral Method Sparkling. And then we switched over to Bacchus. Right. German grape. The German grape. German white wine. Now we're going to something rather tame. This is Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio. um, But it's a little bit different color. Yeah, it is. It sure is. So most people would go, uh, Pinot Gris, and they're going, wait a minute, uh, Jason... Um, the Pinot Gris I've had are all straw-colored. <laughs> this is not straw-colored. This is what this color is, is that? red. Red. Uh, I'd almost describe it as a pomegranate color. Oh, sure. It's very soft red. Yeah, I, it's almost electric too. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. it's got something red little, around the little, edges. Little neon color going <laughs> on here. Ooh, that's different. That's mm. So this is skin fermented Pinot Gris. Uh, comes out of Santa Cruz. And uh, basically, I ferment it on the skins for 30 days, just like I'm trying to make a big red. And so little known fact to a lot of wine drinkers out there, um, if your favorite grape is Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio, um, heads up, the grape is actually pink. (laughs) So (laughs) even though uh, most of the wines that come out of this varietal are white, they're just quick to the press, and that's a very standard style for making white this wine. It has a dry feel in the mouth Yes, to me. it's got tannin Yeah, because it's been fermented yeah. on the skins for so long. It's actually tannic. Um, Your wines are so different. <laughs> Do you think that's a big reason people come here because you have this reputation of this creative difference because yes. they really are different? Yes, they're extremely different. Do you market that way? I yes, mean, we oh, try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah lots of um, thinking outside the box. People know when they come in here, they're, they're going to get something different. Not yeah, your, yeah, not your regular stuff. The road yeah. less traveled. That's right. Wine wise. <laughs> Very cool. I this think we. Sh- I think we should Here's do a to little you. toast. Sure. <laughs> Very important to do toasts. 
celebrate the victories of all kinds. Here's to the road less traveled, particularly Cheers. with uh, the skin-fermented Pinot Gris. Mm. Do you have a wine club? Yes, we do. Yeah, we have one for Rebel, and I also have one specifically just for my Uncharted brand as well. And, um, and you have some options available to people. That, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, here at Rebel, we have um, what we call the Rebel Alliance. Um, for those Star Wars geeks out there, yes, we opened on May the 4th. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriate. Well <Yeah>. done. <laughs> Long live the Rebels. Yes. <laughs> so the Rebel Alliance, uh, um, we have a few different levels, a 3, a 6, or a 12, and um, so here at Rebel, we're a collection of three different brands, mm -hmm. and so our clubs are um, uh, collections of each one of the um, uh, brands. So, you know, if you sign up for the 12-pack, you'll get four Uncharted, four Cadle Family, and four Leaf and Vine. Now, this is really cool. These are your partners here at, at Rebel Vintners, so this means that they're, they're getting to experience the other winemakers who participate in this tasting room mm -hmm. to, to sample their different styles. And this is pretty rare in wine clubs um, that are winery wine clubs that you get to sample from multiple winemakers. Um, you know, this means you got more choice. Probably means you're going to stay in the club longer because there's going to be so many more options to try. Yeah, there's a lot of diversity. Um, and actually, some of the fun, um, intriguing projects that a few of them are released already, and we pour them down here. But um, uh, Leaf and Vine and Uncharted in particular, we've been sourcing uh, a couple different vineyards. Sorry, the same vineyard and splitting the fruit and we make it different ways and then pour them side by side. It's really interesting. So like we'll get to my Carnion later on, but um, I do 100% whole cluster on that versus Yum. the other one is like a 50% whole cluster with destemmed fruit over the top. And just a very, you know, it's, it's like keep all the constants similar for some of these uh, fun experiments and mm -hmm. then, and then um, show the winemakers uh, decisions, you know, that, and, the, and the, those decisions really come through. Yeah. You're cool. very, very creative in your experimenting. <laughs> Can I ask another question about the wine club? Yeah, of course. If you don't mind. Um, in some clubs, say, the winemakers determine what they're going to get, and others you can pick and choose. Once a person has tasted a lot of your wines and know what they like, can they pick and choose, or is it all pretty set? You know, um, we try to make sure that, um, you know, not only is the experience pretty, like, low-key and casual and one-on-one -on -one with the uh, owner winemakers, uh, but also the club should continue to remain in that same kind of relationship. So it is very possible to pick and choose, you know, after you join the club. Yeah, I, you know, I want to, I've had that before. I want to, um, mm -hmm. I either want to double up on that or I want to switch this out for some, one, something over here. It's totally possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We very like cool. to make sure that. Do you have a club just for the people who are willing to experiment and try things that are new Heck and what yeah. you're fooling around with. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that would be the fun club. Yeah. We'll call the this fun. the fun club. <laughs> Good name. Good name. Well, we're almost out of time for this one show. Fortunately, Jason has been gracious enough to invite us to stay a little longer. So we're going to get a second Good. show, which is really exciting because he's got so many wines for us to try. But I, I want to make some sure. Bottles sitting I, want, right I know. <laughs> I, I know. They're just, they're calling out our names, right, Linda? So we want to make sure people know where to find everything. First of all, uh, Rebel Vintners here is open daily, right? Open daily, yeah, uh, 11 a.m. until at least uh, 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. uh, we have extended week uh, hours on the weekends. Okay, uh, sounds great. Yeah. And again, right here in downtown Napa, it's so close to everything. You can walk to everything. There's, there's also parking lots nearby that um, have plenty of parking available um, here at First and Coombs, also known as, I think, 1201 First Street. That's right. Here in Napa for Rebel Vintners. You can order online at Holman Cellars, and you'd find um, all the chartered, unchartered, not chartered, but unchartered <laughs> wines there. Yeah, so you can order there. Jason, thank you so much for doing the show today. We really appreciate thank it. You, My Jason. pleasure. It's it been great. You. Thank <laughs> you so much. Listeners, thank you for tuning in so much and supporting Wine Women Radio. We'll be back with Jason with part two of the show in just uh, another week. Thank you.